Thanks, you do. Good morning, church. Good to be with you here today. And, uh, you know, Edu just prayed for uh, the situation in, in Ukraine uh, currently, uh, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And I want to say, like, some have already inquired about how we can help beyond praying. And certainly prayer is um, the best thing that we can do, but some would like to help in more tangible uh, ways financially. And so our elders have um, approved the idea of uh, collecting funds uh, to disperse uh, in some way to Ukraine. So if you have it on your heart to do that, I'm going to tell you that you can go to our website, uh, currently go to our Give page in the drop-down menu there. You're going to see uh, Ukraine Relief there. You can make a donation to the church, and then we're going to work with our partners in Eastern Europe through Acts 29, which is our network. Uh, we know that we have partner churches. We have a partner church in Ukraine. Um, we have partner churches in uh, neighboring countries of Slovakia, Romania, and uh, Poland. And with the refugees that are moving across the border, those countries have opened up their borders and allowing any Ukrainians to come in. Um, there's going to be a, a refugee need, uh, a need to care for them, and our churches on the ground want to be at the forefront of caring for them in Jesus' name. And so if you'd like to contribute, we're going to find a way uh, to partner with, um, with the churches, the Acts 29 churches in Eastern Europe. So that's open uh, to uh, anyone to give in that way. All right, we're going to get into this last message in our series, and um, I, I let you know last week that it's on the glory of God, and um, last week in Guest Central, a couple of young men came in who I met for the first time, and uh, they told me that um, the glory of God, this topic, was their favorite topic, and they couldn't wait for the message, and I was like, yeah, nothing like putting pressure on uh, for this one topic, and then uh, this morning around 8.30, a couple of the elders came in. Uh, to uh, my prep room back there, and we prayed together, and the, uh, Peter, the chairman of Rider, he prayed, he said, this most important of all things we could possibly preach. And I was like, I'm going home. <laughs> I, I, like, I don't, I don't want to preach now. Um, I, so what I want to do is want to tell you that I'm going to do a terrible job in this message. I'm going to not meet your expectations for this message at all. I'm setting the bar incredibly low. Uh, for this message on uh, the glory of God, and hopefully uh, the Lord uh, will do something with it along the way. So we are summing up, uh, summing up this series, um, and, and I want to start by talking a little bit about identity crisis. And identity crisis is when you don't know who you are, and, and that can be as applicable to individuals who don't know they are who they are, but also to organizations like a church. And if you don't know who you are, Others are going to decide that for you. If you don't know who you are, you're going to drift aimlessly through life. Again, true for people and true for organizations like the church. And for the church, a lack of identity undermines mission, causes division because people don't know what this thing is about, and opens the door to false teaching. The New Testament warns us repeatedly about false teaching and its negative effect on the church. And understanding this matter of identity crisis is the reason why we came to this series, why this DNA series that we've called We Are Harvest was so critical. We need it to lock down again, to review and refresh our memory around who we are as a church in order to be on mission as Christ intends, remaining unified as the body of Christ, and then refuting any error, any doctrinal error that might, might try to tempt us to uh, drift off. 
And so this series ends today, like I said, with the crown jewel of the whole series, the glory of God. And what we've looked at in the six previous messages reached their pinnacle in this message, this in, in our aspiration to glory, uh, to give glory to God in all things. Ultimately, everything else we've talked about in the series, all of it exists for this one thing, that we would glorify God. And so let me attempt a definition here. The glory of God is his resplendent beauty. It is his magnificence. It is his awesomeness. To refer to what the lexicons would say about the two key words that are used in the Old New Testament for glory of God, the Hebrew kabod and the New Testament or Greek word doxa, from which we get the word doxology, which is a prayer at the end that exalts the Lord. These two words both mean a weightiness, a weightiness, which indicates importance. It is to be impressive. It is to be substantive. Now, having attempted that definition and this explanation of words, someone said that the glory of God is better described than defined. And I think I'd agree with that. Better to see the glory of God, better to experience the glory of God than try to define it. And we'll make an attempt to do that here because as a church, we seek to glorify God. We seek to glorify God. And we do that in three areas. And the first is this, in our believing. In our believing, we glorify God. God is glorified when we believe what he says in his word. God's pleased by that. And our human tendency is, is to believe something other than God's word. We looked at a verse previously in the series that talked about human beings wanna, wanting to find teachers and preachers that just tickle our ears, things that make us feel good about ourselves, things that are pleasing and appealing to us, that we go after such teachers. That's our human tendency. It goes all the way back to the beginning. You recall Eve who lived in the perfection of the original creation and had the word of God completely uh, and, and fully available to both her and Adam because the Lord walked with them in the garden. They enjoyed a face-to-face -face relationship with God and spoke to him in that way. So Eve had the word of God, lived in the perfection of the original creation, no corruption whatsoever due to sin surrounded in the garden by the unveiled glory of God. And we're going to come back to that phrase, the unveiled glory of God. But she was surrounded by it. Adam was surrounded by it. But they cashed it in for the word of Satan, the serpent. She believed that she could be as God. That was the temptation. She could be as God. And the problem with that temptation was what? It stole the glory from God himself. God says, through the prophet Isaiah, he said this, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I give to no other. 
And Adam and Eve stole the glory of God when they believed that they could be as he was. Eve messed up. Eve messed up and that affected all of us. Adam messed up and that affected all of us through all the generations. And the pathology of that in our lives is the same. We also want to be as gods. We want things to go our way. We want recognition. We want glory. We want to construct our own belief. One that makes us feel good. It goes along with our own desires. In fact, I could go through a whole set of of worldly beliefs. We could spend the rest of our time talking about philosophies of this world that are counter to what the Word of God teaches us. But I'll pick just two of them that are most common today. The one-two punch, if you will, of current thought would be, first of all, rationalism. Intellect to the exclusion of faith. Everything must be rational. Everything must be thought through. Intellect to the exclusion of faith. Why can't it be both? Rationalists say, no, it must be only the intellect. And relativism, the second, your truth is not necessarily my truth. So there is no standard. There is no foundation. Your truth is not necessarily my truth. What I believe is not necessarily what you believe. I don't know how you construct a society on such a thing, but there it is. Both of these, relativism and rationalism, rob God of his glory because they put man at the center of an understanding of truth. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, The Problem of Pain. He said, man is not the center. God does not exist for the sake of man. And man does not exist for his own sake. Now I get having that explanation and understanding all of this. I get how the world goes there. I get how people who don't know Jesus go down the path of relativism and rationalism and all the other isms. I get it. And really, that's God's concern. What happens in the world is God's concern. God will judge. God's going to sort it out. God's going to bring history to a close in just exactly the way he intends. Our concern is that we would rob God of his glory right here in this community, among people of faith, among people who profess Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. We simply can't go there. We can't allow the creep of rationalism or relativism to come into the church or into our individual lives. We have to seek to glorify God in our believing. And so Paul writes this in his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians. He said, all the promises of God The word of God, he's speaking about the word of God, the revelation of of God to us. All the promises of God find their yes in him. The word of God is 100% reliable and true. And he says, that is why through him, through Christ, who made these promises, who gave us his word, who, who proclaimed his gospel, who inspired the word of God for us. That is why it is through him, through Christ, that we utter 
our amen, our so be it, our we agree. We utter our amen to God, notice, for his glory. We believe in his word. Believing in his word results in God receiving the glory. So to come back to the definition we, we looked at, to, as, to ascribe to the word those characteristics that we ascribe to God himself because the word is God incarnate. So we look at this and the word of God is weighty. It points to the importance of, the, of, of this word in our lives that God, as he speaks to us in his word, is impressive. He's substantive. I hope we feel that every time we open the word of God. I hope we're, we're feeling the sense of impressiveness and, and substantiveness, that it's weighty, that it's important in all of our lives. For our church, it starts with our doctrinal statement. This is a statement that our elders have worked on and established. It's on our website. I hope that every person who's considering being part of Harvest and every person who is part of Harvest, I hope at some point you went to the website and you read the doctrinal statement. I know that when you visit here, the things you look at are how easy was it to get from the parking lot to the church? How friendly were the people? How comfortable are the seats? How good was the worship? How fun is the children's ministry? How good is the coffee? These are the things that we use to judge the church. And I wonder how many of us actually go to the doctrinal statement and read it to see if there's a lot. Do I actually believe what these people believe? You say, well, I'd like to read it, but I only speak French. That's okay. We have it in French on our website too, so gotcha. You say, well, I don't speak French. I only speak Spanish. But it's on our website in Spanish too. You're saying, how long is he going to go on with this? That's it. It's only translated into two other languages for now. But it's there. We should read it. It's weighty. It's important. It's impressive. It's substantive. It points to the glory of God. It shows how important these things are to us. It establishes, that doctrinal statement establishes the baseline for everything else. And when we think about the various roles that an elder has in a church, one of them is to guard the doctrine, to be the overseers who make sure that we stay within the, the guardrails of what the Word of God teaches. So they protect that as part of their job as overseers. From there, our believing is seen in the preaching, the teaching, and the discipling, and the counseling. The word of God being brought to bear in all of these areas. It happens in Awana, in Harvest Kids, in Harvest Youth, in small groups, in hope groups, in studies of various kinds, in one-on-one -on -one discipleship, through our sermon archive, and what we do on Sunday morning. All of it, all of it, a declaration of our yes and our amen to God for his glory. And beyond that, as we walk with Christ as individual believers, we get that personal time in the word. Part of the definition of a disciple is that they walk with Christ. And, and part of our understanding of that is that I spend time with Jesus one-on-one. -on -one. 
And by doing that, we are declaring, I hope you're not just doing it to check a box, but we're reading the word of God on our own to declare his resplendent beauty, to to declare his magnificence and his awesomeness. Every time we open the word of God. You know, too often we want to overcomplicate the Christian life and the application of his word. But in this case, it, it defies being complicated. It's just so simple. If you want to glorify God, believe him. If you want to believe him, you have to know what he says. And if you want to know what he says, you have to read and study his word. really that simple. Read the Bible. It took 20 minutes to say that. But that's as, that's as uncomplicated as it gets. Read the Bible, glorify God. All right, here's a second. We also seek to glorify God not only in our believing, but also in our doing, because it's not enough to simply believe if the believing does not motivate action. And as soon as you say a statement like that, um, if you know the Bible, you're immediately thinking of the book of James because this was a major theme of his in his letter. James 1.22, be doers of the word. This will sound familiar to you. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Then he has this little commentary saying, deceiving yourselves. If you, if you are a hearer only of the word and you don't do it, you're deceiving yourself. So we hear, and when we hear that implies believing. I not only understand it, but my will conforms to God. I choose to believe it. I hear and do it. If we only believe, according to James, we're lying to ourselves about the adequacy of a faith that does not result in works. I feel like anytime we get around this topic of faith and works, it's good to pause, have a little digression, Make sure we're all on the same page about this. And so I'm just going to make a statement here that you're going to say amen to at the end. We are saved by faith alone. And having received the grace of God by faith to forgive our sins, in our saved state, we respond with works that give evidence to the legitimacy of our salvation. The works follow faith as evidence. And that's exactly what James was getting at. We are not in any measure saved by works, but only, as the Apostle Paul would say, this is in Ephesians 2.8, we are only saved by grace through faith. And then two verses later, he says, then that results in good works. Now, here's why that's so important that we would talk through all of that, because when anyone insists on adding works to the means of their salvation, They rob God of his glory. Only the sinless son of God could appease the wrath of God. Only the sinless son of God could atone for our sins by dying on the cross. There's no amount of effort or works that we could bring to the table that would affect in any way our receiving of forgiveness from God. And if we think there is, if we think there's something we can do, 
then we're getting the glory. What could I do so that I could get to a place where I'd be saved? That's not the way it is at all. Only Christ could do that. And so that's, that's the end of the little digression. Everybody good? Everybody's good with that? So we seek to glorify God in our doing. Here's the key verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How much are we supposed to do to the glory of God? All of it, all of it. The entirety of our lives must be spent in glorifying God. Glorifying God. This is, in fact, this is what we would call the normal Christian life is that in every aspect of my life, I am pleasing God. Think about the various spaces that you occupy in your life, places that you go to in your life. In your home, are you glorifying God? If you're married, are you glorifying God in your marriage, how you respond to your spouse? If you have children, if you are a child and you have parents, is God being glorified in those relationships? Is your home a place, a space where you are glorifying God? That's, your home is included in all. In church, in your interactions with other believers, on the serving team, in your small group, in the lobby, are you glorifying God in all of these relationships? Or are you here a little bit just for yourself? In your workplace, does your employer take notice of Christ because of how awesome you are as an employee? Do your employees think that this place of business is the best place you could possibly work because you're the boss? We should be glorifying God in our workplaces and in our friendships and in our, our leisure spaces our recreation and our rest. We should be glorifying God in, in all the public spaces that we go to, glorifying God in restaurants, glorifying God in grocery stores, glorifying God on the roads. I'll admit this is hard because there are so many idiots on the road <laughs> and at Costco. And the only thing that keeps me from completely losing it in my car or at Costco is the fact that I'm afraid I'm going to run into one of you there. We glorify God even as we drive around, even at Costco. One more space. We glorify God in our social media presence. The teens and 20-somethings who inhabit TikTok, are you glorifying God through what you post and what you watch? You 60 and 70-somethings on Facebook. You glorify God by what you look at, what you read, what you take in, what you like, what you comment on, and what you post. 
is God being glorified in you in the social media space. It's whatever you do, it's wherever you go, do all to the glory of God. You see, we've moved from the sphere of simply believing. That was the first point. That's our mind and our heart engaged to a very public expression of God-glorifying activity. This quote I've used before, I, I love this part, especially the part I underlined here from John Piper. The glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of his holiness in all the spaces of our lives. It is the going public of his holiness. It is the way he puts his holiness on display for people to apprehend. So the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. And Christian, listen. God most often manifests his holiness through you and me. That's how he's choosing to manifest himself right now. It's through us. In all those, in all those spaces. A day's coming. I was reading Revelation again this morning and prepping for this series down the road. And 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 I was reading toward you know the end, and you just see how God is now manifesting himself very directly in the world, so that there's no doubt that it's the Lord. I mean, when the rider on the white horse, Revelation 19, shows up, there's little doubt that that's who that is. That's God going public very directly with himself. But until that day, right now, he's manifesting himself through us. Now, we've talked a lot about doing in this series. In fact, almost the entirety of this series is about doing. Our stated mission as a church is about doing, to glorify, to glorify God by making more and better disciples of Jesus who love God and love people. That's doing. Our main priorities as a church, we articulate as the four pillars, are preaching, worship, prayer, evangelism, doing, 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 doing. We define a disciple with four W's. A disciple is one who worships Christ and walks with Christ and works for Christ and witnesses for Christ. Do, 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 do. It's all doing. Every one of those rooted as we've seen in the scriptures, we've built that case throughout the series. It all points to a life, whether we're talking about us in a corporate church community sense or we're talking about us individually as Christians. In fact, what we're really seeing, though, is, is, is in all of this, this phrase I want to lay on you right now is that in, in all of these ways, we are called to live a life that is horizontally vertical. Every Christian should be living a life that is horizontally vertical. This church should be a church that is horizontally vertical. And that is to say, it plays out down here horizontally in, in all of our life-on-life -life interactions. But it all points vertically to the Lord himself, who is the only one who gets the glory for it. The Christian must live a life that is horizontally vertical. And in fact, as we heard in a previous message, we talked about the gifts of the Spirit, which allow us to do, to serve others, 
that these gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 are called the manifestations of the Spirit, the Spirit showing up in what we do. Or we could say that it is the going public, to use Piper's phrase, it's the going public of His holiness through what we do. And so church, keep doing, keep serving, keep living out your life and manifesting the holiness of God to this world. All right, here's a final one. We seek to glorify God in our believing, in our doing, and thirdly, in our being. This one's a little bit more difficult to pin down, but we are indeed, I think we would all acknowledge, we are spiritual beings. We have a soul. And I'll suggest also that the church, not just individual believers, but the church itself collectively has a soul. I'm talking about the local church. God dwells in His church just as He indwells individual believers. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, in, in 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, He uses the same phrase about the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 6, it's very obviously pointing to the individual believer. And in fact, the, the, the pronouns in the verse are singular. It, it, it refers to us, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he uses the phrase, it's a bit different. Do you not know, Paul writes, do you not know that you, do you plural, not know that you plural, he's speaking to the church, he's speaking to the Corinthian church, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you as a church. Now, when you know this, it moves the center. God will be glorified when we grasp the significance of this, when our being is centered on him alone, not just our individual belief, uh, being as believers, but also as a church. Because this speaks to the essence of who we are. It speaks to the immaterial part of the church, not the professed doctrine or what we believe or the outward works, what we do, but the inward reality of a heart that glorifies God in our being. This is really speaking to the to the real transformation that's happening in our lives. The transformation that's making us more like Jesus every day. It speaks to our growth in holiness. It speaks to us conforming to the will of God more and more with every passing year. The Apostle Paul wrote this in his second letter to the Corinthians. He said, we all, speaking again to all believers, we all, with unveiled face, I said we would come back to that phrase, and there it is. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Now, this verse requires a little bit of explanation to understand it. The reference to the unveiled face comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Exodus, Exodus 33 and 34, in fact. Moses was spending this time with God and he makes this really incredible request of God where he says to him, show me your glory. Moses says, I want to see just how awesome you really are. God says, you don't know what you're asking for. And God tells him in Exodus 33, no one can look at me and live. 
The problem, of course, is that the glory of God is the radiated beauty of his holiness. Moses was a sinner. The moment that he would look on the unveiled glory of God, Moses would be consumed because of his sin. But God says to him, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pop you into this little fold in the rock here. I'm going to put my hand over you. I'm going to walk by. And as I'm walking by, you're going to get just this little bit, just this little glimpse of my glory as it passes. It happened. He's in the rock. He's got the hand. It's just the the passing glory. It's not the full-on thing. And as Moses descends the mountain to go back to the people, the people are terrified. Moses' face is glowing. How many times removed is this now from the actual full-on glory of God? Because now the glory of God isn't even around anymore. This is just the radiating glory of God on Moses' face. So Moses wore a veil, covered it up so that the people wouldn't be terrified of him and, until it faded. And Paul's point here in referencing this in, in the letter to the Corinthians is that New Testament believers who've had their sins forgiven by Jesus Christ can now stand in the light of God's glory and not be terrified by it. And I want us to just pause for a minute and enjoy that. Because of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, us being clothed with the righteousness of Christ, we can bear the glory of God. And we are therefore step by step growing in our righteousness and in our understanding of who Christ is and who we are in him. Paul says from one degree of glory to another, progressively being sanctified and brought more fully into the image of Jesus Christ. This is our transformation. This is our growth in holiness. This is our ongoing conforming to the will of God. We are progressively being more sanctified day by day, being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ. And so the more sin, again, to use the language that Paul uses in Ephesians 4, the more sin that we put off and the more of Christ that we put on, the more glory of God that's seen in us, the more glory of God that others will see in us. John Owen, one of the Puritans, said this. This gives us a fuller understanding of what it means to really be in Christ and to bring God glory. What Jesus did and suffered in the fulfillment of his mission is esteemed, reckoned, and ascribed to us with all the fruits and benefits becoming ours, as if we had done and suffered the same things ourselves. And this union of Christ with us is an act of his own mind and will, wherein he is inexpressibly glorious. He gets the glory for it. That's the entire point. We're being transformed, and God gets the glory for that transformation. And here's how it plays out in our lives. 
Again, to go back to Piper, here's what he says. I couldn't say it any better than this. When the glory of God is the treasure of our lives, we will not lay up treasures on earth, but spend them for the spread of his glory. We will not covet, but overflow with liberality. We will not crave the praise of men, but forget ourselves in praising God. We will not be mastered by sinful, sensual pleasures, but sever their root by the power of a superior promise. We will not nurse a wound, a wounded ego, or cherish a grudge, or nurture a vengeful spirit, but we'll hand over our cause to God and bless those who hate us. Now listen to this last line. Every sin flows from the failure to treasure the glory of God above all things. We glorify God. We seek to glorify God in our being. In being like Jesus. Now here's how I want to sum up um, not just this message, but this series. We've been talking about glorifying God in this. It's humanity's ultimate purpose. The catechism says that it is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so let's cap this series off with a declaration. And what I'd like you to do right now is just stand with me right now. And I don't want you to make this declaration if it's not in your heart to do it. But this was a seven-message series, and I'm going to give you seven statements on seven different slides. I'm going to read the slide, and then when I'm done reading what's on the slide, I'm going to invite you to respond by saying, we agree. We agree. You don't have to say it if you don't agree, Um, but if you do agree, go ahead and pronounce that. Go ahead and declare that after each of the seven statements. And, um, And I know we don't do a lot of a lot of response like this, and so uh, pull out whatever Anglican is inside of you to respond appropriately to this kind of more liturgical response to the end of the message, all right? So I'm going to read the statement, and your response will be, we agree. God is glorified when the foundation of our lives is Jesus Christ. God is glorified when the church preaches without apology, worships without shame, prays without ceasing, and witnesses without fear. God is glorified when every disciple worships, walks with, works, and witnesses for Christ. God is glorified when we love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God is glorified when we love people from every tribe and language and people and nation, regardless of status, gender, or age. God is glorified when we're on mission to make disciples and plant churches, seeing sinners turn to Him in faith alone, finding hope in the gospel. And God is glorified when in our believing and in our doing and in our being, we show that the center of all things is not us, but Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you are so, so good to us, so very patient, so very kind. Father, we thank you for your kindness in sending Jesus Christ to be our Savior. Father, for the salvation that you have provided for us through him. Thank you, God, for gathering us together as the church. And God, I pray that you would continue to do a deep work in us, Father, that we would know without question who we are. No identity crisis here, but Father, 
knowing that we exist for your glory and for no other reason. That, Father, you are the center, not us. And so, God, help us as a church to glorify you by making more and better disciples of Jesus who love God and love people. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.